a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to welcome you to the second hour of our program today. I'm very excited to welcome back to the show Alexandra Hudson of Young Voices. Alex, it's good to have you back again. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, I know you've been staying busy because I, I was just reading one of your articles, and uh, you have uh, you have a pretty interesting take on one of the I'm going to I'm going to say one of the bright sides that has come out of how education, particularly uh, schooling, has had to adapt to the reality of of COVID nineteen. Um, this is from the Washington Examiner. The title is "School Teaching Go Home." Tell me a little bit about that headline. That's right. So this uh, this piece I wrote for the magazine actually uh, a number of months ago uh, is now all of a sudden relevant as debates at the local to the federal level all across the country are raging about the nature of and and whether to go back to school, how back to school will look. The reality is that parents across America um, are going crazy, and we know that it's best for students to have them in the classroom. We know that. Uh, the empirical data shows that for social and emotional benefits and also uh, actual learning outcomes, it's better for kids to be in the classroom. So that's, of course, the ideal. But as we know, we are still very much amid amid the pandemic. We are not out of the woods yet. And so it doesn't make sense for every district and every locality and every school to, to go back. Some will, some have. Others, it's not wise to do so just yet. And maybe they'll have some sort of um, hybrid. But what I did in this piece was uh, looking at innovations, uh, even at the tail end of, of the school year, um, this past school year, right, right, um, kind of March, April, May, as schools shut down all, all abruptly, uh, and, and and looking at adaptation at the local and national level, where people were were saying, hey, like, what has worked in the past is not going to work this time around. So we're going to have to do things differently. So there's a term here that I've not heard before. And, and I, you know, I'm, I, we've done homeschooling, we've done charter school, private school. Uh, my wife is now a public school teacher. I thought I had a pretty good grasp on all the uh, facets of, of education, but I have not heard the term micro-schooling before. Tell me what that's all about. Micro-schools are essentially uh, groups of parents that uh, that decide to, and, it, and it's not just parents. Often they're they're officially schools, but they're just at a at a hyper localized level. Sometimes as, as as small as two to three students a class. And in this Washington Examiner piece, I highlighted a micro school in Arizona and a micro school network called Prenda, that uh, actually is is a. Um, uh, it is it is a private school, but they um, have some sort of arrangement with that. They, 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 when they realized that the Arizona school uh, system, the public school system, was not uh, prepared, as many districts were totally caught off guard by the COVID, by the challenges COVID nineteen presented, um, they uh, adapted to have an online model that was that they made available of of their education system to help parents facilitate their children's in uh, in home learning, and so they and they did that within. 
24 hours. They adapted their their model for their own students, but also made it available very affordably for for students in the in um in their Phoenix school district. I like how you point out that it, they they actually refer to themselves as or tout themselves as kind of the Airbnb of education. Because I get Airbnb. I, I use Airbnb uh, when I travel, or at least I did back when travel was was still, you know, the, the norm. But uh, the idea being that uh, underused resources can still be utilized by, by those uh, who, who have the purpose to use them. I just I love to see this kind of innovation. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm getting kind of tired of the whole one size fits all approach that always seems to come from the top down. Absolutely. So the the uh, um, the Airbnb analogy also fits another uh, another um, model and innovation that I feature in this essay called Unschool.School that was originally um, uh, uh, like many <laughs> like many uh, educational platforms was in person. But as soon as the pandemic hit, they quickly adapted to online and, and essentially uh, it, it matches via a platform um teachers or just people with a subject matter expertise of any sort that may not have a, a, a specific credential to parents and students that have a particular desire to uh, to, to learn in, in a certain field. And so one one example of a, of a teacher that I spoke with on the unschool.school platform is, is Beth Sullivan, who's an MIT-educated mathematician that's not a certified teacher in Massachusetts, but she's still able to teach, uh, you know, hundreds of students every year, many of them on the unschool.school platform, um, uh, even though she doesn't have this official certification, which actually gets to uh, one one recommendation that I've I've loved uh, seeing be discussed uh, as 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 school districts adapt in the COVID nineteen crisis. This is the time to 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 reevaluate teacher certifications because the reality is, Brian, some teachers, it's not safe for them to go back, especially if they're in a vulnerable demographic um, or, or, or um, are, are immune compromised in some way. And we need to make sure it's easy to replace them and make sure students that are back in the classroom are able to get the instruction they deserve. So this is the time to reevaluate. How can we get people uh, how can we make it a little bit, bit easier to get people uh, who are qualified, of course, we're not going to compromise on quality, but just make it easier to get them in the classroom. And my apologies for confusing Brenda with unschool. Now, I have to ask unschool. That's a that's a term I've heard Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic right. Education. Is she is she associated with it? That's right. She actually was the founder and former CEO. Okay. Uh, and she. She's very recently uh, stepped down, but she's a she's a wonderful inspiration. Exactly, a leader in the unschooled movement. Well, it's it's exciting to see people innovating. In fact, I think it was just uh, two days ago, I, I saw an article about uh, coronavirus cuisine, and, and it was describing how different restaurants have had to adapt. You know, uh, a fancy French restaurant, which normally would be doing wonderful sit down dinners, has had to adapt to selling um, takeout food, and and that does That's- not. That doesn't always translate well, but it sounds like that same innovative mindset is at work here within the realm of education. That's exactly right. When you know, there's the adage goes, necessity breeds innovation. And Alexis de Tocqueville, when he visited America in the 1800s, he celebrated this spirit of association, the spirit of innovation, and just volunteerism. Where we in America, uh, in contradistinction from his uh, fellow Frenchmen and Englishmen that he had he had uh, visited and known, uh, we 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 don't wait for the government or anyone else to do things for us. We see needs and we fill them, and. Uh, of course, the pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis has been catastrophic for our nation, uh, an incredible amount of human loss and, and tragic suffering. Yet 
it's also brought out the best of the best uh, of the American civic tradition in many, in many ways. Um, it's alive and well, you know, from from restaurateurs, as you mentioned ago a second ago, to um, to local innovators in, in education, and um, and even parents are having to be adaptive. There's a a new report out about um, schooling pods, pandemic pods. You know, it's kind of like a micro school, but way less official. Like the, the teachers might not. It, it's just parents getting together and like you know, one parent has the kids one day they're doing something, and and the next day. And, and there have been some criticisms that um, this is uh, something that uh, only wealthy families are doing, but this is something that uh, people across demographics um, are, are are doing because everyone is is, is desperate to to see, see their kids um, educated and also, again, to give America's parents a break a little bit after having kids home for going on six months. It's insane. I know it has to be hard, too, for um particularly bureaucrats and politicians who are used to being the ones, well, I'm here to ride to the rescue and I'm going to tell everybody what to do. D- do you notice as you as you were putting this article together, is, is there pushback from those power centers as far as letting people innovate, letting them uh, do so without having to first seek permission? Or, or are these things uh, taking root in such a way that even those with uh, with governmental oversight are stepping back and going, no, no, go ahead. It looks like it's working. The nature of this crisis is so complex, so unprecedented that even the most ardent technocrat has to realize that they can't make decisions that are going to uh, meet everyone's need. Um, they can't, and 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 they're not. Um, you know, just just a few weeks ago, um, and it's it's still ongoing. A conversation about what the role of the federal government is in is in, in ensuring students get back in the classroom, but taking a humble approach one that is very deferential to local knowledge and local realities, uh, letting letting the parents be the one that put pressure on districts and collaborate with local districts to to decide what going back to school looks like. That's what that's the disposition that we need from our our leaders, our superintendents at the state level and our leaders at the federal level. Well, my wife is a public school teacher, as I mentioned. I know there's been a lot of question marks hanging over her head. Um, I haven't shared your article with her yet, but I'm going to because it leaves <laughs> me feeling a sense of hope that this may actually improve things. We we may have been handed a uh, sow's ear, but uh, there may be a silk purse coming out of this no matter what. I hope so. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that is the case, Brian. Alexander Hudson, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I will have a link to your excellent article on the show notes page, and I hope we get to talk again real soon. Thanks so much, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, phone lines are open if you would like to join the conversation. 801-331-8113. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry, it won't be an option, but uh, hey, you might get to hear some interesting people. So uh, there are so many different facets to uh, to how coronavirus has affected our lives and, you know, I, I know that it's it's easy to get caught up in the doomer mindset. Oh, it's all lost. Everything is lost. I, I so appreciate guests like my last guest, Alexandra Hudson of Young Voices. And, and there there are optimistic things to be seen. And, and uh, the word that she used when we were talking off air was we're going through a, a rebirth of sorts. 
Now, trust me when I tell you, I'm the kind of guy who has not exactly welcomed the idea of rebirth throughout my life. In fact, I'm the kind of guy who liked to play it safe and keep things pretty much the way they've always been. Predictable, right? Routine. It's comfortable. We don't have to worry about things changing. Long ago, one of my radio colleagues said, hey, if I could give you any advice, it would be don't be afraid to reinvent yourself when the need comes along. Now, this was a guy who had been in radio since, I'm guessing, what, about 1976, 1977. He'd been at it for a while. He knew of what he spoke. And time has shown that he was absolutely correct. Now, that doesn't mean you have to develop a new persona, all right? I'm not going to be Wolfman Jack or, you know, I'm not going to reinvent, you know, the person that I am, but what I do or how I go about what I do. Uh, maybe Let me put this another way. How I pursue my sense of life mission or life purpose. It may have to change from time to time. And guess what? It has. And in ways that I really couldn't have foreseen. Now, there was a time when I fought that and kicked and screamed, no, this can't happen. I don't want it to change. I'm getting better at just kind of rolling with the punches and realizing that uh, sometimes, well, all the time, change is going to happen. And, And the best thing to do rather than resist it is to simply roll with it Look for the good. And so I appreciate when there are things that, that, that pop up, like opportunities to innovate, better ways to do things. Uh, one of these things, and you, you are listening to, you know, what, what part of that sounds like right now. If you're listening on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, you are listening to a not just nationwide but worldwide app that is broadcasting as far as uh, people can get either cell service or Internet service. If you can get data, you can, you can follow what's being said here. That means you have access to multiple sources of information, not just me. I love the fact that technology has uh, improved to the point where instead of having to drive into Salt Lake City and brave the traffic, I know I sound like a spoil sport for not being willing to do that, but can I tell you that every day that I don't have to drive into Salt Lake feels like uh, it feels like a day spent fishing. <laughs> it's, it's not subtracted from your life. It's just it's it's a relief. So the technology is such that I can actually work from home, which means I can actually magnify my efforts of what I'm trying to do. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm getting off into the weeds here, but the bottom line is, for all the bad stuff that's going on, and yes, if you want to look around and really look with a careful bit of scrutiny, it's, it's there. There's some pretty ugly stuff going on. There's also some really great stuff right there in front of your nose. But you have to have the mindset of, I'm looking for what's good. I'm looking for things, and this is what helps me. I don't think this is too Pollyanna-ish way to approach this. I look for things for which I can feel genuine gratitude. And sometimes it's little things. You know, it's, you know, the fact that uh, if I'm going to go walking today, at least I have a good pair of walking shoes that, that don't hurt my feet. You know, some people may be like, I wish I had a pair of shoes. Some people are like, I wish there were less lions in the neighborhood. Every time I go to get water from the well, somebody's getting eaten. Okay, you get the picture. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about a uh, recent uh, case that came before the Supreme Court. This one I'm still shaking my head over. I, I got a, a kind of an urgent email from one of my longtime listeners from southern Utah. And she said, hey, did I hear correctly? Has the Supreme Court nullified the First Amendment or at least its protection of religious freedom? And I thought, well, this is the first I've heard about this. But on Friday of last week, the United States Supreme Court 
declined to intervene on behalf of a Nevada church, which is challenging that state's ban on religious gatherings of more than 50 people. So apparently uh, Governor Sisolak and, and others in Nevada are saying, yeah, if you have a church, you cannot have more than 50 people gathered at a time. Now, for some people, especially those who are very uh, risk averse and, you know, that sounds like the smart thing to do. We don't want to have people spreading coronavirus. Okay, well, explain me this. So why are casinos allowed to fill with thousands of people as long as they maintain 50 percent or less capacity? Does that seem like a double standard? In this case, you had Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley versus Sisolak. Sisolak, I'm so sorry. I'm butchering the governor of Nevada's name here. Legal representatives for Calvary Chapel and Evangelical Church were arguing that the state of Nevada is unlawfully discriminating against houses of worship by allowing a number of public facilities to fill with crowds to 50% capacity while restricting religious gatherings to 50 people, no matter how large the building. Calvary Chapel wishes to offer services to gatherings of up to 90 people. That would represent about 50% capacity for them. The state of Nevada, however, argued it could lawfully discriminate against places of worship for public health and economic reasons. Now, the majority of the Supreme Court judges, five against four, rejected Calvary Chapel's application. Justices Samuel Alito, Neil Gorish, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas dissented, saying the high court should have heard the case. In his dissent... Justice Alito contrasted Nevada's treatment of churches with its preference for the state's casinos, noting that even at 50% capacity, some Las Vegas casinos are hosting thousands of patrons. And the judge also pointed out that the American Constitution guarantees freedom of religion, not gambling. Alito said that the Supreme Court's willingness to allow Nevada to discriminate against places of worship was, in his words, disappointing. He stated also that the state's directives violate the First Amendment and do irreparable harm to Calvary Chapel and its congregants. Justice Gorish stated it was obvious that Nevada was discriminating against places of worship in favor of houses of entertainment. Gorish said, this is a simple case. Under the governor's edict, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once, with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number number gathered around every roulette wheel there. He said large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places, but churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting more than 50 worshipers. No matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. And then he said in Nevada, it seems it is better to be in entertainment than religion. Maybe that's nothing new. But the First Amendment forbids such obvious discrimination, he said, adding, but there's no, there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. And Justice Kavanaugh said that the First Amendment requires that religious organizations be treated equally to the favored or exempt secular organizations, unless the state can sufficiently justify the the differentiation. Now, he believes uh, with the aforementioned judges that Nevada failed to do this. And Kavanaugh actually argued that just the justifications Nevada has put forth for the discrimination, public health and the economy just aren't persuasive. He said Nevada hasn't demonstrated that public health justifies taking a looser approach with restaurants, bars, casinos and gyms and a stricter approach with places of worship. 
As for the economy, Kavanaugh said no precedent suggests that a state may discriminate against religion simply because a religious organization does not generate the economic benefits that a restaurant, bar, casino, or gym might provide. See, that's where my thinking went as well. I tried to reason, why would the, why would the state of Nevada you know, give favorable treatment to restaurants, bars, casinos, or gyms, but to tell churches, no, 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 not you. You're a danger. And, of course, you know, the, uh, the quick answer I thought of was, well, of course, there's not much tax revenue. There's not much regulatory revenue that can be realized by the state, at least with a church. Now, those other businesses, oh, yeah, especially the hospitality industry. I really hope it wouldn't come down to that, but can I just suggest, let's keep an eye on this. We have so many freedoms that are just so precariously sitting on the edge of the precipice. Let's not accidentally push one over. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Working? This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can always check out the show notes. I'm building a lovely archive of them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Not hard to find. Scroll on down the page. If you have the inclination, I would encourage you, please, subscribe to the podcast. Then you can listen anytime, anywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's totally on your terms. We try to make it as easy as possible. The nice thing about the show notes is I can include a lot of different resources, a lot of different information, articles, essays, and so forth that, uh, that I don't always have time to get to in the course of the program. I know if we could expand hours to 70 minutes apiece, I might be able to fit in a few more. But then again, I've got to take into consideration your time. And, and I'm presuming that you're probably sitting there hanging on every word. And frankly, I just, you know, I, I can't keep you tied up for that long. So I also know that I have a lot of very independent minded listeners who they're like, hey, as much as I love to hear your smooth, sultry tones talking about it, uh, I'd like to read it for myself. So there it is. Just go to the dot com. Look for the show notes. You'll find them for every day. Lots of nice links in there to uh, take you directly to the Fount of Wisdom. All right, let's next talk about, uh, let's talk about this this video that apparently has been seemed, that has been deemed so dangerous that uh, the social media giants are pulling it down as fast as they possibly can. This is the one about the uh, press conference with the doctors outside the Supreme Court the other day. They talked about hydroxychloroquine. They talked about um, the, the fudging of data and how there is, there is an official narrative that seeks to, to shepherd everybody into a uh, kind of a, a neat little corral where basically you do as we say and don't question anything. And it's been so interesting to see Twitter and YouTube and, and others just pull it down as quickly as they can. This is very dangerous. This is far too dangerous to let the public even see or consider these ideas. Now, in the last hour, we talked about why rather than trying to silence the heretics among us, maybe we should listen to them. It doesn't mean you have to believe what they're saying or that you're, you're giving them credibility just by letting them speak. You never know when you may have another Martin Luther or someone who is speaking out against the status quo who's right. And the smear campaign that has been launched against these doctors, it's, it's so interesting. I don't know whatever happened to the idea that, you know, two different viewpoints can exist simultaneously and, and the world isn't going to spontaneously combust. 
because there there are people and they're unfortunately on both sides of the covid you know debate you know where you've got to think this way someone is wrong on the internet and we've got to get them under control but here's a question that uh, was posed that i think has uh, great relevance to this okay if social media is going to step up and play doctor then shouldn't they be preparing for malpractice suits if they deign to tell us what is acceptable uh, as far as medical advice, what we can and cannot discuss, then, hey, maybe they should be held accountable like a doctor would be held accountable. This is an article by Adam Mill. I'll share some excerpts with you coming up. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. I'm losing my mind. Why is that? Well, I just was talking to somebody, and just like I said all along, Switzerland. They're not doing anything about it. And guess what the numbers in Switzerland are doing? Tell me. Going down. Ah. Now, see, in the, next, in the next segment, I'm actually going to talk about Sweden, which was another one of those countries that didn't lock down. And yet, uh, you know, there were very dire predictions back in April of how everybody was going to get sick, everybody was going to start dying. But that's not what happened either. So, hmm. For, 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 forgive me. That's what I meant, Sweden. Oh, okay. Well, shoot, I was thinking the Swiss are on board. All the better. No, I don't know. I just heard the report with Sweden. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is nothing more than the flu. I mean, I just saw the hypocrisy a little while ago. I stopped, had lunch, and I was watching ABC4 News. And this is the national one. And they're talking about how concerned people are about the... The uh, antibody, the, you know, the the uh, the shot you're going to get. What do they call it? Oh, that? the vaccine. The vaccine yeah. that you're going to get, and and what's the long term effects? And is it going to be effective? It's like, is the flu shot effective? What are the long term effects of the flu shot? Nobody knows. It it hits people different. And and there are guys and, like me who don't want to get the flu shot. You know, I'm, I'm not denying that the flu exists, but I'm telling you, I don't want to. I don't want to go get the flu vaccine. I think your body can, you know, if you're a healthy person and you got a good immune system, then you can fight it off yourself. Here, here. It, 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 this is pathetic, and the American people need to wake up. They need to tell these people who are trying to control you. I appreciate you telling us how you really feel, Rob. (laughs) Thanks for the call. That's one thing I like about Rob. He does not equivocate. He just tells it how he sees it. So here's this article by Adam Mill. and, And tell me if this rings true to you. Adam Mill says most people understand the constitutional guarantee of free speech doesn't include falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. And, and the reasoning, of course, is, is pretty sound. A panicked mob could crush or trample the weak or vulnerable people as the instinct to survive overtakes common decency. Well, Adam Mill says this maxim came to mind when Breitbart announced that Twitter and Facebook censored a press conference by actual doctors describing their life-saving lessons learned from treating actual COVID-19 patients. Among the lessons discussed was the prophylactic use of a combination of hydroxychloroquine and other inexpensive therapies that seemed to stop the dreaded disease from advancing to its deadly second phase. One doctor said she treated over 300 COVID-19 patients using the therapy. And these patients included vulnerable patients with diabetes, heart conditions, and advanced age. 
Now, she proudly announced she had not lost a single patient with the early intervention of this therapy. Additionally, COVID-19 failed to infect any member of her staff taking the therapy as a prophylactic measure. She warned that the misinformation about these therapies was causing people to die needlessly. Another doctor spoke to the opening of schools. Young people, he said, are able to tolerate the virus very well. Opening schools poses little or no risk to children when compared to leaving them at home. Children are very unlikely to spread the disease to each other, and astonishingly, a contact trace study revealed no example of a student infecting a teacher in the entire world. Now that is fascinating. Then there was a third doctor who spoke to the public about the effects of lockdowns and the public health effects of lockdowns. He said our suicide hotlines are up 600%. He cited spousal abuse and alcohol abuse as two additional public health effects that lockdowns have exacerbated and recommended the Swedish model of cautious reopenings of businesses and schools, which yielded better results than the United Kingdom approach of a draconian lockdown. More people die under the U.K. model, he said. Now, according to Breitbart, Facebook justified censoring these doctors as followed. Quote, we've removed this video for sharing false information about cures and treatments for COVID-19. YouTube and Twitter followed suit for alleged violations of the platform's COVID-19 policies. Adam Mill says social media censorship of medical opinions is far more dangerous than the usual censorship of conservative political opinion. By censoring doctors, they're offering their own medical opinion to the public that these cures won't work and suggesting that it's dangerous to let patients or other doctors hear the advice. And so he asks, are these censorship decisions being reviewed and approved by actual physicians because they're tantamount to playing doctor to the public? If what these doctors say is true, then it is conceivable that patients who could have been saved by the advice will die. And if what these doctors say isn't true, then the correct response is a rebuttal from properly licensed physicians relying on the latest and best science, but not censorship. Indeed, Twitter expressly told Breitbart that the site's entire account would be limited because the video may pose a risk to people's health, including content that goes directly against guidance from authoritative sources of global and local public health information. So not only is Twitter, which is not a medical provider, claiming that these actual doctors are wrong, but Twitter is saying that the patients following this advice could be at greater health risk. That's medical advice that Twitter is offering to the general public. And Adam Mill says if anyone dies as a result of this censorship, these social media giants will be responsible. He says social media should not be restricting legitimate medical policy debate on its platforms. It should not be permitting fear-mongering while censoring advice from licensed doctors who actually have some demonstrated experience and claim success in fighting the disease. A doctor who did this would be sued for malpractice. Why should these social media giants be immune from the same consequences? Now, I understand there's an argument, well, it's their property, their platform, they can say whatever they want. Okay, fine. But if, if they're using their platform, their property, in ways that are actually like heightening the likelihood of people dying who could have been saved, you don't think maybe there should be some accountability that goes along with that? I'm just saying, maybe it'd be tough to, to tie it to a specific case. 
but it seems at the very least irresponsible. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you have some thoughts on that whole idea of uh, should the uh, social media giants be held accountable for malpractice if, in fact, they end up engaging in malpractice by preventing people from uh, accessing information or data that could potentially help them. I'd love to hear from you. 801-331-8113. Here's another story that uh, that really jumped out at me, and uh, I got to tip my hat again. John Miltimore, who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, has been just like a pit bull on uh, COVID-19. He is one of the, the top contributors to uh, a very reasoned and well-researched understanding. Now, this is not suggesting that John actually walks on water and, you know, has been known to raise people from the dead. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the guy has done his homework and has shown a lot of truth on a subject that has been polarized to the point of almost uh, being unrecognizable, at least in, in some of the reporting that's done. There's so much fear porn being broadcast 24-7. It's nice to get a look at some actual numbers. And so when I saw that he had a new article out about Sweden's actual COVID-19 results compared to what uh, modelers were predicting back in April, This is worth taking a look at, and here's why. Because if you remember, back in April, when Sweden was one of the very few countries that would not issue those stringent lockdown guidelines, what were the predictions? Come on, you know very well, and I do too. People, well, you know, they're going to pay the price. And look at all those COVID cases they've had. So let's talk about what has actually happened. I think John Miltimore says the prediction was that there would be nearly 100,000 deaths in Sweden. That's what the modelers were saying. If you don't lock down, you're going to have almost 100,000 deaths. Do you know what the total COVID-19 deaths in Sweden are as of right now? They're at about 5,700. Hospitals were never overrun. Daily deaths in Sweden have closed to a a crawl. Their health agencies reporting no ICU admissions. And they did it without a lockdown. Now, what about those countries that had strict lockdowns? Well, the data shows that uh, they really did about uh, the same or in many cases worse than Sweden. In other words, the lockdown didn't make the difference that the experts and the modelers were telling us it would. Maybe we should pay a little closer attention. John Miltimore says at a press conference last week, Anders Tegnell said a massive decline in the new COVID-19 cases shows Sweden's lighter touch strategy is doing what it was designed to do. Tegnell, who is Sweden's top epidemiologist, said it's really yet another sign that the Swedish Swedish strategy is working. It's possible to slow contagion fast with the measures we are taking in Sweden. See, unlike most nations in the world, Sweden avoided a hard lockdown. The nation of 70 or I'm sorry, the nation of 10 million people instead opted for a strategy that sought to encourage social distancing through public information cooperation, and individual responsibility. Restaurants, bars, public pools, libraries, and most schools remained open with certain capacity limits. 
And John Miltimore says Sweden's decision to forego lockdowns brought a barrage of scrutiny and criticism. Its approach was described by the New York Times as a cautionary tale. But John Miltimore says, as he's pointed out, the criticism stemmed less from the results of Sweden's experiment than the nature of the experiment. There are ample examples of nations and U.S. states that have suffered far more from COVID-19 than Sweden, even though these countries and states initiated hard lockdowns requiring citizens to shelter at home. And John Miltimore says perhaps the best way to measure the success of Sweden's policies is to compare the outcome models predicted to the actual results. On May 10th, Dagens Nyheter, Sweden's biggest daily newspaper, analyzed a pair of models inspired by the Imperial College of London study, which predicted as many as 40 million people could die if the coronavirus was left unchecked. Now, these models predicted that Sweden's ICU, or intensive care units, would expire before May, and nearly 100,000 people would die from COVID-19 by July. Our model predicts that using median infection fatality rate estimates, at least 96,000 deaths would occur by 1 July without mitigation. The authors wrote, well, it's a frightening prediction, and perhaps that was the point, says John Miltimore. As Johan Norberg pointed out in The Spectator back in May, these models were used by critics of Sweden's strategy to show its health care system would collapse if it did not make a U-turn into lockdown, similar to the United Kingdom. Well, we're nearly through July, so how do the predictions stack up against the results? Total COVID-19 deaths in Sweden stand at 5,700, nearly 90,000 less than modelers predicted. Hospitals were never overrun. Daily deaths in Sweden have slowed to a crawl. The health agency now reports no new ICU admissions. As the chart shows, and he's got a wonderful chart here, which you will find if you go to the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, the modelers weren't just wrong, they weren't even remotely close. How did the experts get it so wrong? Well, John Miltimore says there were many reasons, of course, including the fact that COVID-19 isn't as deadly as modelers originally feared. But the simplest answer, however, is that the modelers overlooked a basic reality. Humans spontaneously alter their behavior during pandemics. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Humans are intelligent, instinctive, and self-preserving creatures who will seek to avoid high-risk behavior. So their natural law of spontaneous order shows that humans naturally adapt their behavior when circumstances warrant it. In his 1988 book, The Fatal Conceit, economist F.A. Hayek described this process as the least appreciated facet of human evolution. Miltimore says scientific evidence as it relates to the current pandemic bears out this economic idea. Research shows that in the U.S., workplaces and consumers changed their travel patterns before governments started issuing stay-at-home orders. In other words, without being ordered or even instructed, tens of millions of Americans already were adapting their behavior to the unknown threat of COVID-19. A similar experience took place in Sweden, where foot traffic and train traffic were sharply reduced without draconian orders and penalties. Tegnell said, we actually made a comparison to our Nordic neighbors, and the Swedish travel patterns have changed just as much as our Nordic neighbors, in spite of them having much more legal lockdowns than we have. Now, John Miltimore says the Swedish experience is important. As Phil Magnus has noted at the American Institute for Economic Research, Sweden's success suggests the presumed risks and benefits of lockdowns were largely a fiction. Magnus wrote, The assumed benefits of a more severe lockdown policy appear to have been greatly exaggerated. 
The assumed risks of the milder course adopted by the Swedish government appear to have been similarly inflated. The overall death toll of the baseline do-nothing scenario appears to have little grounding in reality. And he says one might argue that caution was warranted, given the unknown threat of COVID-19. But this argument is less persuasive when the cost of the lockdowns, a looming global recession, hundreds of millions of jobs lost, millions of businesses shuttered, historic social unrest, surging extreme poverty, and widespread health deterioration are all taken into account. Fortunately, it's not too late to learn from our mistakes. But he says, first, however, we must acknowledge them. What a great article. And yes, it will be included in the show notes, which you can access at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to, you know, persuade you, hey, you know, come off the ledge. Don't jump. But I am definitely trying to persuade people to consider, you know, that there may be more to this story than what is coming to us through most of our official channels. I'm not telling you that Dr. Fauci is nothing more than a, you know, four-flushing liar. I don't know. But it seems pretty apparent to me that things have been exaggerated, that things have been played up. The media, oh, don't get me started on the media. The way that they have pimped the fear to the public to try to get people more scared and more uh, distrustful of one another, I think it is incredibly unhealthy. And yet for those like John Miltimore who are willing to dig and look at the data, and, and I'll leave it up to you. You can check out his article for yourself and see if those graphs really represent what he claims they represent. It seems to show that we have been sold a bill of goods. <laughs> We've been sold a much bigger crisis than is actually merited. And, of course, the, uh, the follow-up to that is, so why do we continue pretending? Well, you know, the governor is finally going to announce that you can start to do this or start to do that again. Why are we waiting for the governor to tell us what to do? Where did he get that authority? Now, I'm speaking for my home state of Utah. The governor here, Gary Herbert, claims I have the authority to shut things down if I have to. My friend Connor Boyack has said, show me in the Utah state constitution where it says that you have that statutory, statutory authority. Where is it? So far, nobody's been able to produce anything that even begins to look like, oh, yeah, that would clearly authorize him. So stay skeptical, my friend. Stay healthy. Do not give in to the fear and stand your ground as it pertains to maintaining your freedom of conscience, your personal liberty, your private property rights. Those things aren't going to defend themselves, but you and I have to find the backbone to stand up and tell people no in order to defend them. Just know this, you're not alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show.